Well, as uh, Miss Susan was talking about all of the special things in the church he grew up, we have some special things here that you want to see in other places. I wonder how many of you have a piece of furniture like this in your house? Probably not. Because this pulpit does not belong to me. Some churches, they say, well, the pastor has to protect his pulpit. This is not my pulpit. This furniture represents when the Spirit of God works through messengers to communicate to you the Word of God. And so that's why the music stands are separate and the podium is separate. But this pulpit is all about proclaiming God's Word to us. One of my roles as a pastor is not only to do the preaching, but according to Ephesians chapter 4, God has given churches pastors to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And it is my joy to introduce one of our saints that the Holy Spirit is going to speak through to communicate the Word of God to us today. Uh, Brother Brendan is taking a class at Spurgeon College. And uh, so this is part of his classwork, but most importantly, this is the proclamation of God's truth to us. So I'm going to ask the Lord's blessing upon our speaker, and then ask you to open up your hearts and your minds. Father God, this is a servant that you have placed before us, the one that you are going to use to speak to our hearts, our minds, and our obedience. Father, I pray that you would give him total liberty to speak freely what your spirit has laid upon his heart for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in the name of Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. It is uh, good to be here with you this morning and to fellowship with one another here. Um, As Pastor Dave has pointed out, I am not Pastor Dave. And we will not be in Revelations this morning. The book of Revelation will be taking a little break. Lord willing, we'll be back there next week, and I'm excited for that. But uh, to no surprise for many of you, we'll be in the Epistle of John. We'll be in 1 John this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 John towards the end of your uh, your Bible. If you don't have one, go ahead and grab one out of the pew in front of you. So we're in God's Word. Uh, Today we're going to be dealing with the issue, the Christian, and the issue of sin. I don't want to speak for you, but for myself, this is an issue that is real. For I am a Christian, yet I continue to sin, so I need to know how to handle that. So I hope this is relevant to you as well. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. John opens up, he says, my dear children, while I have had weeks to prepare this, I wanted a lesson, a sermon that would speak to the fathers, for I knew it was going to be Father's Day, but this is a sermon that is addressed to the children. John says, my dear children. This isn't a, uh, the children of John, his biological children, but he acts as a father to them. 
He acts as if they are his children. He cares for them. He loves them. They're someone that he cares about. And as he writes this letter, it, it goes out. It's not your typical letter, right? It is a letter not addressed to a church or to a person, but it is a pastoral letter. It is meant to be read from church to church, the church around John. And he knows these people. And as you read this letter, you know very quickly that it is a letter that is written to believers, to Christians. Why this letter is not written to the church at Flint Hills Community in 2022 is written at a specific time to a specific people group for a specific reason. While that is not us, one of the things I love about this letter is you don't have to do a lot of jumping around to make it applicable to us today because this letter was written to the believers and here we are at the church, the saints. This letter was also written for many of the same reasons that we struggle with today that they were struggling with during that time. This letter could have almost started, these first few verses could have started almost, my dear children, to the saints here in Chase County at Flint Hills Community Church. Listen to what I have to say. Hear me. This is important. And he writes it as if he cares. See, John is going to jump in and he's going to give us a command. Do not sin. And then he's going to address the issue. You have sinned, Christian. Now what? You see, almost all of you know me and most of you know me very well. I grew up in this church. This has been my church home forever and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to have fellowship with one another here. At the age of 10, I realized that I was a sinner, and, and that scared me. Anybody that understands when you're a sinner, the punishment for sin is death, which is an eternity in hell, that's scary. I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. And as I was scared, I can remember at 10 years old in Burlington, Kansas, we were in a, uh, a, a camper that night, in that summer night. I can remember realizing that, not wanting to spend eternity in hell. And I didn't know what I meant by it exactly. I didn't exactly know what it even meant. But I asked Jesus into my heart that night. That summer, I was later baptized in the Chase County Lake. Uh, many of you were actually probably there. The church was there. And it, it was a, a day I would remember. And after that, I went on the rest of my life living really well. Life was good. Not really, actually. I sinned, and I continue to sin, and I continue to sin to today. I have a problem. And to be honest with you, to tell the truth, for about 15, 16 years of my life after I had sinned, I would come to church. I'd sit in these pews where you're at today. I'd be torn apart. I can remember sitting there and looking at the, the little shelf in front of you on the pew, where the communion cup goes, and I would pray to God, and I'd tell him, God, I'm sorry, I've sinned this week, and it's tearing me up. And, and I'd, I'd start numbering off these sins that I could think of. And then I'd pray even, Lord, there's sins I can't even think of. I can't remember some of the things I've done wrong. But I was scared. I knew the punishment for sin was death. And I was convinced that if I were to die that week, that I would go to hell. I was terrified. And that happened week after week, after years, after years. Now I pray today, after this sermon, after today, that we have a better understanding of the gospel. 
than I did those 15, 16 years of my life. I pray we have a better understanding of who we are, who Christ is and what he accomplished, who we are in Christ and who he is in us. And I pray that that is what will drive us to a right living. Okay. The first point of my sermon is that we have a command against sin. John starts off, he says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Okay? He, ha- he commands us not to sin. And why is that? Well, he says, I write this to you. Why does he write this? I think that's the whole letter. But we've learned a couple things. If you read chapter 1 reading up to this, he points out a few things. One, in verse 3, chapter 1, he says that we have fellowship with one another, with our brothers and sisters, and we have fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. You see, John understands the seriousness of sin. While John is here with one another, uh, you do not lose your fellowship with God. You don't lose your fellowship here if you sin. You're still partnered with God. But it doesn't take a genius to know that if you have a relationship with somebody and you sin, you hurt them, you do something wrong, that it damages that relationship, right? God wants us to have fellowship with one another. In verse 4, he says, we write this to make our joy complete. John understands that if you sin, you don't lose the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you. He's your seal. He's your guarantee. But he understands that the fruit of the Spirit is joy, love joy. He understands that when you are living in sin, that you don't have that joy. And he wants you to live the way that you are designed. He wants you to live with a human, with joy. In verse 5, he says, I declare to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. In verse 7, it says that we are to walk in the light as he is in the light. As a Christian, we are to reflect who God is. We are to be like him, right? If God is light and there's no darkness, darkness and light don't mix together, right? We are to reflect who our Heavenly Father is. If we are children of God, we are to reflect that. We are to be like him. Now, we kind of have to answer the question of what is sin. It's possible that John is talking about uh, habitual, living in sin here. This word that he uses is just the the normal word for sin in the New Testament. Uh, Later, John will actually define the word, and he says sin is lawlessness. This idea of sin, the word comes from, is the idea of an archer. that He's aiming at a target, and what he's aiming at is the bullseye in that target. And sin is any time you miss what you're aiming at. So if you're really close to it, but you're outside, you've missed your target. You have sinned. I think it's easier to describe what sin is by describing what we're actually aiming at. Because the outside of that target is huge, right? I was thinking, yesterday, my children, um, a normal occurrence, my wife and I are sitting outside, and Lauren comes running outside. Mom, mom. Luke is doing this and this and that and that. And then here comes Luke. And Luke says, oh, she's just being a sissy and she's tattling and I didn't really do it. It's not that bad, right? And then Lauren gives her defense and Luke gives his defense. And I could sit there and I could tell my children, well, don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. 
But instead, I asked Luke, Luke, what's the greatest command? And he first says, to love your neighbor as yourself. I said, that's true. What's the other one? And he told me, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And I asked them if they were doing that. And they said, no. They had missed the mark. That is our mark, to love the Lord our God and to love others. It's a lot easier to tell them what to do than what not to do. Because I don't know where to even begin when I tell them what not to do. But it could all be summed up in love God and love others. John, very quickly though, he says, but if anybody does sin, that if, if you read all that just how it is, it gives the idea that you could live life without sinning. But that's not what John is saying here. This if is an if and when you do sin and you are going to sin, this is what you need to know. You see, he, he very clearly before this in chapter 1 makes two statements. For anybody that thinks that they could be a Christian and not sin, John points out very quickly in verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see, John very, very clearly points out, hey, if you become saved and you think you are perfect now because of your own doing, you've deceived yourself. The truth is not in you. And then he points out in verse 10, he says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. You know, more likely for the majority of people today living, they think that they are good people, that, that they haven't sinned, or maybe not a bad enough sin. And they think they're, they're good. But the Bible very clearly says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Point number three, we have an advocate amongst sin. You see, I've never been in a court case. I've never had to go to court, and I'm grateful for that. But with work at Harshman Construction, being in charge of the health and safety, there's two times I thought we might go to court. And during those two times, this last time, um, there was a young man. We actually prayed for him here. Mom, mom asked for prayers, and he'd been hit with a plate of metal so hard that it, it didn't even break his skin, but it almost tore his liver completely in half. And when that had happened, Imshaw at work, Mind Safety Health Administration, they have a rule, a law, that says within 15 minutes, if there's an accident that is possible going to be a fatality, you have to call them. Well, when this young man got hit by that plate, like I said, it didn't tear any skin or anything, um, but they knew he was hurt. So they called 911, but they didn't realize how serious it was. His father was there, and, and his father goes ahead and takes the boy, a boy, he was 18, 19 years old, takes him up to the front gate so they can meet the ambulance. While he's up there, the boy realizes just how serious it is. It's not just hurt, right? He, he could feel something inside, and he was right. And he told his dad. So his dad calls 911 back. At this moment, we realize that we have a serious situation. And they send life support. The helicopter is on its way. Right away, the father calls me. And, I, and we call Imshaw. I mean, just about as quick as you possibly can. Well, by the grace of God, the, the boy ends up being all right. Um, he was in the hospital, and he was actually healed up and back to work within like a week. 
is, uh, is by the grace of God. But then all the investigations come in and the time schedule shows up and Imshaw says, you're guilty. You took longer than 15 minutes to call us. At first, I didn't think it was any big idea. And then it came out in the letter. It was a penalty, it was a fine for almost $10,000 that we were going to have to pay for being about six minutes late because we were dealing with the situation. And I didn't think that was fair. I really thought that the rule should be after you deal with the situation, right, we're taking care of it, then you have 15 minutes. But it didn't actually say that. And they were pretty black and white. And so we, we decided that there's a possibility we're going to take this to court and fight it. We were encouraged to. At that moment, when you go to take something to court, you find out really fast that you can't do this on your own. They sent us some papers in the mail once we decided to take it to court, and I couldn't even read the paper. It was written in English, but it was in lawyer talk. I don't have a clue what it's saying. So we decided we were going to have to get a lawyer. And luckily, from a friend of mine, um, I had been recommended a lawyer. Now, when you're looking for a lawyer, there's certain things you're looking for, right? The first, like, you want someone that understands your industry. You know, I don't want an accident from a vehicle lawyer. I want someone that understands the rules of mining and the law that the federal government has set in our particular industry. And I also want someone that's good. If you're going to go to the court, you want someone that is going to represent you that's going to do a good job. Really, if you're in court, you want someone that is the best, right? Well, we called that number up, and they were willing to represent us, to take the case on. But they told us, they said, hey, we just want you to know that uh, we do think you're right, but it is going to cost you a whole lot more money to pay us than it is to just pay the fine and move on. Because good lawyers, I guess, are not cheap. <laughs> so they gave us some advice, and we followed their advice, and we settled before court. We were still found guilty, but they cut the payment in half, and we ended it there. Now, this isn't the exact same thing here that John's setting up, but it's very similar. It's a court case. Okay? John is setting up a court case, and who's on trial? Well, it's the sinner. The sinner is the one sitting in the seat. And it says, we have an advocate. And who is that advocate? It is no other than Jesus Christ, the righteous one. An advocate is someone who comes alongside and helps. The idea is, Jesus Christ is your lawyer as a Christian, as a believer. And it's Jesus who's representing you in this court case. And who is the judge? Well, the advocate is with the Father. It is actually God himself who is the judge. Now, the problem is, it doesn't actually matter how good of a lawyer you have. In front of a judge, if you are guilty, there will be a punishment. And the problem is, this isn't a, a jury trial. I don't have to convince a bunch of people that I'm a good person. I'm convincing God himself, the Father, who is just and righteous and holy. Now, it is true that our God is a God of love. John says that. God is love. 
and I'm grateful for that. But God is not just love. While he's fully love, he's also fully just. And we understand that. If you go to a trial here, and you stand in front of a loving judge, a judge is supposed to be just, right? It doesn't matter how loving he is, if you have committed a crime, there's a punishment to be paid. And a loving and just judge would give you that punishment, no matter how loving he is. So this God, who knows everything, is our judge. And he knows that the penalty for sin is death. The Bible says they are your wages. Wages is something you earn. I deserve it. It's not like God's being unfair. The punishment that I deserve is eternal punishment in hell, a separation from God, a separation from all good things. And this picture doesn't paint it here, but the one that is accusing us in Revelation chapter 12, it says that Satan himself right now today is up there day and night accusing us. He says, Satan shows up and says, he's guilty. He messed up. He broke your laws, God. Give him the penalty. And the question is, will you be found innocent at that time? Our defense attorney, Jesus Christ, it says he is the righteous one. Now, I think we take that for granted a lot or what that means, but I don't know if we always understand who's defending us here. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. A Barna group had a poll. Um, it's about, about seven, eight years ago. They pulled about 4,000, over 4,000 people across the nation. And they found out that out of those 4,000, 61% of them claimed to have a commitment with God, with Christ. But out of that 4,000 people, only 31% of them realized or understood that Jesus Christ was without sin, that he was righteous. The rest of everybody else thought that he was a sinner, just like you and I. The poll also showed that like 90 Six or 90-some percent of people believed that he was a real person, but they, most of them believed that he was a sinner. And, and that brings us into a problem, into our next point. The third point is that we have atonement for sin. Again, part of the problem is no matter how good of a lawyer you have, you'll still be found guilty because there's a punishment but here it says in verse 2, he, referring to Jesus Christ, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now in the ESV, it says he is the propitiation for our sins. And both of these words actually are not normal words that we use today. They're not in my normal vocabulary. My vocabulary is not very long, but these were definitely not in them in my normal talk. But they are church words. And an atoning means a, a covering. And a sacrifice, it's referring to Jesus' death. So what our lawyer does, our lawyer's there, and he says, Brendan, you're guilty. <laughs> and, and the judge knows it. But I'll take your place. He says, there has to be a punishment for your sin but I will take that for you. Jesus, in the Gospels, 
he cries out while he's on the cross. He says, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? In the, in the Gospel of John, as it is on our curtains here on each side, Jesus says, before he dies, he says, it is finished. You see, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and he knew exactly what needed to be done. Jesus himself steps in and takes our place, that the punishment for the sin is paid for. And it's important that he is righteous, or he wouldn't have been able to do that. So while he pays the punishment for sin, then his righteousness then comes to me. And now I am righteous, not because of what I have done, but because of what Christ has done. You see, now when I sit in the pew, I realize that I am righteous, that I am a child of God's. Not because I am righteous, because I never sin, but because who my faith and trust is in is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now I can have assurance of my salvation, and now that I know that, it's unbelievable how much easier, still hard, but easier it is to live that out. Because my identity is in Christ and not myself. It changes the whole story of everything of my life. In chapter 4, verse 10, it says, John says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do you realize how much God loves us? Loves us so much that Jesus himself would take your place for you. Now, the question is, if we understand that, if we understand that we're righteous because of Jesus, does that mean that as him, he being our uh, defense attorney, him being our substitute, then can I go on living however I want? Paul answers that question in Romans 6, verse 2. He says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? John says the same thing here in our passage that we're looking at. He says, children, my dear children, I love you guys. Do not sin. But if you do, and you will, know that it is Jesus Christ himself that represents us. That is Jesus Christ himself that took our place. So that leads to the question then. If, if, I, am, if I am righteous, but I am a Christian and I still sin, then what am I supposed to do with this sin when I sin? One example of handling sin is, is Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Adam and Eve, they sinned in the garden, and what did they do? They hid. They hid from God. You have that option. Now, it's pretty silly. We know that God is everywhere. You can't run and hide from God. I mean, ask Jonah, can you outrun God? No. He's sovereign. He's in control of everything. He knows all things. So, as believers, as Christians, when you sin, I want to encourage you, don't run from God, but turn to him. Because he represents you. He loves you. He cares for you. He wants you to have assurance of your salvation. He wants you to have fellowship with the saints and with him. He wants you to reflect his glory 
that others may see you and see him through you. Now, if this is a new idea to you today, like maybe you haven't heard that, or maybe you're like me and you didn't understand what it meant to ask Jesus into your heart. Maybe you've heard it a hundred times, but you know that if you were to end up in court today, and we don't know when that time will be, but if you were to end up in court today, maybe Jesus isn't representing you. But you want that. The question is, how do you get it? Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it speaks of, as Jesus speaking, he's speaking about the gospel. In verse 15, he says, repent and believe in the good news. What he is saying there is, one, we have to realize that we are a sinner, right, before we even need to do anything. Because if we think we're good, if we're that person in, in chapter 1, verses 10, we claim that we have no sin, then we don't think we need a helper. First, we have to admit that we need help, that we need Jesus. And then it says repent, to turn away from. I'm going this direction, but now I'm going to turn and come this way. I'm going to turn away from my sin and turn to God. And it says believe. Believe what? Believe in the good news. Jesus Christ. Believe in who he is that he was fully man, that he was fully God, that he is the righteous one. And believe in what he has accomplished at the cross, his death, his burial, and the resurrection. We serve a living God today. We serve one that loved us so much that he died for us in his defeated death and has paid the punishment that was for me, not for him. If, if you would like to make that commitment today, I would encourage you to come talk to me afterwards. There, there really isn't anything more exciting that I'd rather talk about than the gospel. And, and there's nothing more exciting to me than having a brother or sister in Christ that we'll spend eternity with. It is truly the most important question you could ever ask yourself is, who is representing me? If you don't want to talk to me, that is fine, but find somebody Come talk to the elders. Come talk to Pastor Dave. Our faith is to be in Jesus Christ, not in me. Because if you put your faith in me, you'll be found guilty. If you put your faith in yourself, you'll be found guilty. Or Pastor Dave, you'll be found guilty. There's only one, and he is our true representative. Let me bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, I I thank you for your word God, I thank you for who you are, that you are a loving God, that you're righteous, that you're a God of grace. I thank you for your love, that you have sent your own son to take my place, a place that I deserved, a punishment that I earned. But you loved me so much that he, he took it. He bore that punishment that I may receive eternal life and live forever in your presence. And someday I will be like you, for I am your child. God, I pray that we take this truth and we live it, and it changes the way we live, and that all this will be for the glory of you. In Jesus' name, amen.